Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. We want to manage the immune system better because part of this is that the immune system is getting out of whack. The immune system is going after the COVID virus, but it's not able to get to it. Oftentimes, these viruses or these infections are hiding in different parts of the body. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now, on to the show. You know, I've really spent some time reflecting on my own phases of burnout this year and past years, and I know I'm not the only one that has gone through or goes through these peaks and valleys. And while sometimes you need lows to appreciate the highs in life, some valleys are pretty difficult for both your mind and your body in a very literal physical way. This year, I'm feeling really pulled to help others work through burnout, nourish their adrenals, mind, body, and spirit, and have some incredible things in store to help you feel refreshed and renewed. I invite you to take my quiz, Are You Approaching Burnout?, to assess your stress resilience and find out more about how to help you overcome it. Go to kristabigler.com forward slash burnout to take that quiz, and it'll also be in the show notes. All right. Today on The Less Stress Life, we have Dr. Evan Hirsch, who is a world-renowned fatigue expert and is the founder and CEO of the International Center for Energy and Fatigue and the Virtual MD Initiative. He suffered with fatigue for five years before he achieved resolution using the Fix Your Fatigue program that he pioneered in his medical practice. Through his best-selling book, podcasts, and online programs, he has helped thousands of people around the world optimize their energy naturally, and he's on a mission to help one million more. He also helps licensed functional medicine providers, trans transition to a successful virtual practice so they can have more impact, more success, and a greater quality of life. He's board certified in family medicine and integrative medicine. And when he's not at the office, you can find him singing musicals, dancing, and playing basketball with his family. Welcome, Dr. Hirsch. Krista, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, there's a lot of fun topics here. It'd be fun to talk about. Actually, I'd love, love to hear about how you went from medical school and decided to get into integrative medicine. And that may actually give us a little bit of your backstory on, I know your story is fatigue, your personal fatigue journey, and that's how we're getting into the post-COVID fatigue. But let's start with your story a little bit because I think it always makes it more interesting and helps people get to know you a little bit better. Sure. So we talked about this a little bit before we uh, got on the call, but it's really, for me, it's all about curiosity. 
So when I was going through undergrad and I was going through medical school, I grew up in New Jersey, never met a chiropractor, never heard of a naturopath. And so all I knew was that I was good at science. I liked helping people. And so medical school was a good route for me. And so I proceeded into conventional medical school and found a lot of questions that I had couldn't be answered by the conventional establishment. So I had a wonderful pathologist, Dr. Conran, who helped me explore some different kinds of medicine. So he gave me books on Native American healing, and I started learning more about hypnotherapy. book was Many Lives, Many Masters, and that actually ended up becoming my first training was in clinical hypnotherapy, which I no longer do, my second year of medical school. And at that training, I met somebody who said, you know, there's this organization called the American Holistic Medical Association that you should come join. And really, my life was changed from that point when I went to that first conference, because here they're talking about getting to the root cause. They're talking about replacing vitamins and minerals and hormones and all of these things that I really believed in that made a lot of sense to me. I'm not a Band-Aid person. Sometimes you need to slap a Band-Aid on it. But really, it's all about what's the why of the why of the why? What's the real cause of the cause? Mm -hmm. And so that was really interesting to me. And so as I proceeded forth with my education, I just continued to kind of layer those things on. And I started off with holistic medicine and then went into integrative medicine and natural medicine. And so all of those things really were about lifestyle habits and replacing deficiencies. But then I found that there were a segment of the population that I couldn't get better. I was, I was getting into my residency and family medicine training, and that's when I met my wife, and she got fatigue that lasted for three years, and I felt really powerless, and I couldn't help her. So I started learning more about different kinds. And then at this point, functional medicine was kind of coming on the scene. So I did my first training in that when I graduated residency in 2007. And that's more about the biochemical individuality of a person. Started to get a little bit more into the toxicities, but then I really learned a lot more when I got into environmental medicine just a couple of years later when I got fatigue and my fatigue lasted for five awful years and just about destroyed my relationship and my business. And I had a newborn at home that I couldn't play with. Daddy play with me. And I said, you know what? I can't. I'm sorry. I just got to lie down on this couch here. So as I learned more about environmental medicine, that's really where a lot of this took off. And I realized that as long as I knew what the causes were of fatigue, that I would be successful. And I found that there were 33 different causes of fatigue, and they could be broken up into the deficiencies that I learned from integrative medicine and holistic medicine, as well as the toxicities that I learned from environmental medicine and I put them together. And, and so that's kind of the, the cornerstone of my work is that people really have to find their causes, the cause of the cause of the cause. And when they find those causes, they're going to be a lot more successful. I love it. Yesterday, I recorded a mini episode about why B12 isn't really a B12 deficiency, and you have to get to the mm -hmm. root of that. And it's essentially what you just said, the cause of the cause of the cause. A couple other comments. When I talk about being in integrative and functional medicine, what I have found on this podcast is a lot of healthcare providers, especially in my own profession, will reach out and say, I didn't realize that I was interested in integrative and functional medicine. I think it's what we all went to school in healthcare for because we wanted to help root causes. That's what we thought we were getting into. That's what we wanted. So I think it's really <laughs> what we wanted from the first place. And it's just, this is like literally the way to do it in our current 
society is integrative mm-hmm. and functional medicine. It's like, this is what we're looking. This is what we've always wanted is, is this. And so, and I actually, you're a man after my heart. I love deficiencies. I love patterns of deficiencies. I love what they infer, right? Because a deficiency isn't a deficiency. It's like what caused the deficiency, but it, it does give you, if you understand the patterns, it gives you a lot of data on what else can be going on. And I feel so strongly that we constantly or we medicate deficiencies all the time, right? I mean, every time I look at deficiency lists or I work on someone's micronutrient deficiencies, I think this is so sad that you would have been getting a prescription for these deficiencies. I'm wondering if you have felt that same way. Absolutely. And then the next step is, like you were talking about with B12, why do they have the deficiency? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times it's from the toxicities, it's from the heavy metals or the chemicals or the molds or the infections that are using up the resources that end up giving somebody deficiency. So yes, I boost deficiencies in my program because it's an important part of the healing process, but in a sense, it's more of a natural Mm band-aid because generally when we get rid of the toxicities, then there's a lot less of replacement of those deficiencies that needs to happen. You bet. All right, let's get into today's topic, which is an arm off of regular fatigue. And as a comment, I think sometimes people don't always resonate with the word fatigue, but you think back to like, what does this feel like? You said, hey, I didn't feel like playing with my kids. I've thought back to, I don't have the energy to clean my house. (laughs) Like I just, I cannot do this and I cannot. And it's interesting to look back at life and realize that we call them different things depending on our personality type, right? So we may not always Mm say, yep, I'm fatigued in this way until it gets quite over. But let's get into this post-COVID fatigue. How did you get interested in this topic? Was it something, when did this start to hit your practice or you became really quite aware and you thought, okay, this is like a subsection I need to really dig into? Yeah, it was March, April, May. It was right around there, you know, about a month in. And we're hearing about people getting COVID, but then all of a sudden there's people who are talking about it persisting. And so there's people who already had fatigue in my programs who start to comment about how they got COVID and they felt like their symptoms got better. But now four weeks later, all of a sudden they're getting resurgence and they're getting a bunch of weird other symptoms that we can go into that list in just a minute. But yeah, it's this persistence that we're seeing lasting longer than four weeks. Now, we don't have an official diagnosis yet per se about post-COVID syndrome or what are called long COVID or long haulers, but it's this process that we're seeing where regardless of what symptoms you have, and most of the time, it's actually mild symptoms initially that end up going away and then coming back. And oftentimes, the symptoms that you present with are not necessarily the symptoms that you have four months later. Usually people will talk about how the initial symptoms are better, but the new symptoms are worse. So it's this very interesting picture that we're still trying to figure out. And there's a number of theories that we can get into on why this is happening. Mm -hmm. All right, let's go through that symptom list. Just to recap, people have COVID and then they maybe get better or... Like maybe their symptoms disappear and then they kind of resurge. When is the exact time? I mean, I know you were talking about four weeks essentially, but what are some of the ways it starts to manifest? And like, what are the cycles? I'm sure they vary. And then let's go through some of those symptoms because I've seen some kind of funny looking things out there um, with people I've known that have had COVID. And I saw someone who was in the hospital the other day. She said, yep, they just call this post-COVID aftermath. (laughs) So let's talk about it. Yeah, so it's different for everybody, which is a bit of the challenge here, is that 
seems like everybody has their own interesting conglomeration of symptoms and that they have this timing is different for everybody. So that some people, their symptoms will go away for a period of time. Maybe it's four weeks, maybe it's eight weeks, and then it comes back. Now, some of it seems to be triggered by exercise, which is why it seems like largely we're seeing people who got COVID, who were healthy and exercising and more robust, who end up getting the post-COVID syndrome. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times those are people who are exercising on a regular basis. And it seems like it's because the body is just at a bit of a precipice and all it needs is a really good push, a really good stressor. Now we're not talking about like mental or emotional stress. We're talking about like a physical stressor and exercise is a physical stressor, which we don't think about. There's something called hormesis where actually when we stress the human organism, it bounces back in a better way. So this is, you know, you're exercising and you're lifting weights and you're using a dumbbell on your right bicep and it's getting bigger because you're breaking it down and through hormesis, it's building back bigger. Now, that almost sounded like a political slogan, then building back bigger, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of the same sort of thing where we're seeing exercise and exercise is then stressing the human organism and the mitochondria and the other components that manage stress are not able to tolerate it. And then people get this fatigue, which generally just to kind of touch on your previous point about the difference maybe between tired and fatigue is if you're getting seven to nine hours of sleep a night and you're still tired during the day where you need caffeine or you need soda pop or you need five hour energy or you need a nap during the day or you don't have optimal energy during the day, you have fatigue. So that is really the defining. And if you fix your sleep and you're getting, like if you were only getting six hours and now you're getting nine hours and you're still tired, that's an issue and your body is telling you something and you have to pay attention. Mm -hmm, for sure. So one listener said, I was well for six days with no fever and then got the 102.9 fever back for six more days. So you're talking about fatigue is kind of an aftermath a little bit, but let's get into this fever reoccurrence and some of the other potential symptoms that people are experiencing. The other person I knew that had pretty nasty COVID aftermath had some serious lung stuff, right? Like she just mm -hmm. really struggled with her oxygen. So what else can happen? So the body functions at better at a higher temperature, you know, which is why we see why we mount fevers anyway. And so the body is able to see that there is something that's present. There is an infection that's present and that something needs to be done about it. So it's going to mount a fever if it can't get rid of it. And that's what we're seeing here is that the immune system on its own is not able to get rid of the infection, unlike the flu or some other virus that you might get where it's going to last seven to 10 days. The immune system is finally going to be able to take care of it and then you're able to get back to baseline after a couple of weeks. What we're seeing is that the virus is persisting. In fact, there was a research article that came out a couple of weeks ago that showed that 50% of people after four months who were asymptomatic, so that means they had COVID, they did not have any symptoms of COVID or post-COVID syndrome at four months, 50% of these people in this study on a biopsy of the intestines had live virus in their gut. Okay, so it means that the symptoms are going away. They're being managed by the immune system, at least for these people, but that the virus is still persisting. So imagine what it's like for people who have post-COVID syndrome long haulers. No doubt in my mind that that virus is persisting and it's causing the immune system to react because in the end, when you think about what symptoms are and you work backwards, symptoms are from inflammation. And inflammation is the immune system reacting to something that ends up causing this expression of symptomatology in the human. 
And so it's important to remember that the immune system is reacting to the virus, whether it's present or whether it's not. And that in turn is causing inflammation and is causing pain and dysfunction. All right. So offshoot question, because you're talking about this study four months later, people are asymptomatic, but 50% of them, their body is working against virus in the intestines in this biopsy, which I'm like this in my head, this is kind of a little bit confusing. Will you actually say that again? Because I was taking notes, but they did a biopsy and they found what exactly? So they did a biopsy and they found live active COVID virus. Okay. So right now, the Department of Health will call people at the end of their presumed COVID time and will say, okay, now you're immune for 90 days. So in our schools, the teachers who have all had it, they said, okay, cool, you don't have quarantine, you're just immune for 90 days. Yeah, there was a recent study that came out from the military where they had done several different quarantines, like a two-week quarantine at home, and then they came on base and they did a two-week quarantine, and then they took these recruits through basic training, and they still ended up with a high percentage of people who had COVID. So I think the immunity is not true. I think Mm -hmm. that such a high percentage of these people who are asymptomatic have the live virus, that the immune system is not working the way that we previously understood, and all bets are off, and we can't say that people have this 90-day immunity after they have it anymore. All right, let me ask you about this concept. I've also heard this. For people walking around that are asymptomatic that have very small amounts of virus, Someone has likened it to, that's like a human vaccine walking around, like very small fragments of virus in the asymptomatic person. What do you think about this comment? I know there's so much we throw back and forth, but you're making me think of all these things (laughs) that have been buried in my brain. And so now I'm like, hey, let's just talk about this out loud and see what you think. Yeah, I think that it's not helpful to think about it in that way because the way that the immune system is working in this case is different than what we thought before. So in terms of vaccinations, the idea is that you trigger the immune system to recognize that the infection is there so that the next time you see the infection, the immune system is going to be stronger and it's going to be able to take care of it. But what if the immune system is not able to take care of the virus in a way that is going to create immunity? If that's the case, then I think this kind of gets into more of the question around why some people get COVID and other people don't. Mm -hmm. Because, yes, I think that, you know, this talk sounds like it's all doom and gloom. But the reality of the situation is, is that if what I'm saying is true, then there's no way to really avoid it. You know, you use your masks and whatever, and you take your supplements, and but you're going to come into contact with it if all these asymptomatic people have it. It's been around now for eight, nine, ten months, and the likelihood that you've been exposed to it or will be exposed to it is high. So I really think that in terms of it being like a vaccine, I would say yes, and if the immune system is not functioning the way that we anticipate, then the whole idea of a vaccine is different. Now, with what we're doing with the current vaccines, where you're doing mRNA vaccines, which are pieces of the virus and are not actually giving you the virus, that may be very different. So the immune system may get some additional boost where its relationship to the virus is going to be different. How is it going to relate to the virus that's already in somebody's body? Those are questions that we don't have answers to yet. I think it's a great question that you asked. Unfortunately, I don't think I kind of hemmed and haw about it, but unfortunately, I don't think I have a great answer for it. Right. I mean, I don't blame you. (laughs) I don't know if anyone has a great answer. Okay. So let's recap a little bit. Long haul or post-COVID fatigue could happen at any time. So in the example I have from a listener, it's 
six days, no fever, six days back fever. It could be four months later, right? Where we're having things pop up. You're saying that could be a recurrence of fever, maybe onset by exercise, but what were some of the other symptoms? I mean, we have some lung things. What is there anything else in this list of post COVID? Like what are the signs and symptoms someone should be aware of for post COVID syndrome? Essentially. Yeah, let's go into those. So you've got the severe fatigue, you've got breathlessness or lung issues, sometimes a chronic cough, but most of the time air hunger. So just a hard time getting a deep breath, muscle aches, joint pain, brain fog, which is hard time finding words, hard time completing thoughts, memory loss, lack of concentration, hair loss, which has been interesting, as well as depression and mental health problems. And a lot of this has to do with all of the different aspects of the body that are being affected by the virus. Mm. Now, sometimes people will start off with just like a little bit of a fever or an increase in temperature, headache, and shortness of breath goes away after a week. They think they're good. And then a month later, all of a sudden, they'll get other issues, fatigue, brain fog, muscle aches, sleep problems. And that's kind of when the post-COVID syndrome or the long haulers would start. Got it. So I think it's important to note that in this list, severe fatigue, breathlessness, air hunger, muscle aches, brain fog, memory loss, hair loss, depression, mental health, of course, symptoms overlap for other problems. So sometimes we can get some anxiety from symptoms that may or may not be really, it's hard to kind of know unless maybe you have, I guess, when do you know it's post-COVID versus something else? I guess you dig in general, but I just want to make that point because sometimes I'll, I will review a symptom list of a problem with someone. I'll say, Hey, like, let's slow down because this actually overlaps a lot. Right. And so when we have a long list of symptoms, sometimes people are like, Oh my gosh, it's reading my brain, but is it, or is it two of the whatever, I guess, I suppose it just depends on the context. Yeah, it's really about the chronology. I'm a big chronology guy. Mm -hmm. I need to know when it happened, what was happening around that time, before and after, what was the progression. But generally, it's going to be this picture where you're going to have a virus. You know, any sort of virus that somebody's had since March can possibly be COVID. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about that. And then I'm thinking about the fact, I mean, there are very few viruses that are going to go away and then come back with these symptoms. So that's just kind of the timing that you're looking at is having a couple of symptoms of a virus. Maybe they're weird symptoms that aren't typically associated with a virus or for that individual. They go away and then they come back. Now there are some people where they don't go away and they just persist and they just keep getting worse and they keep rotating through symptoms where, you know, now they have pain on the bottom of the feet. Now they can't sleep, you know? So it's a lot of weird quote unquote symptoms that are looking more like, interestingly, like Lyme and some of the Lyme type infections that we deal with that, you know, there's also this question about whether or not COVID is unmasking some of these or if it's breaking up biofilm and it's letting out some of these other infections that we see. So, you know, these are just questions that I have that are still up in the air, but that's generally what we see. Right. Yeah. It's good to be curious and ask the questions. And that would be my question as well is when you have something that sounds crazy and severe, 
what is it unmasking or what else is underneath the surface? For example, I kind of have a couple ongoing text chains going with some people that <laughs> have had some COVID history or, or whatnot, you know, if getting questions for you today. And so I have one woman who said she saw a woman's husband recover and then later was in, not that I want to be fearful here, was in congestive heart failure because his cardiac tissue had been uh, compromised through this process. So is there something else? We don't know, but is there something else underlying there, you know, or is this something that we commonly see. I don't know if this is common to see this or not. So yeah, this is unfortunately some more bad news, but some of the latest studies on organ damage are showing that I think it was like 80 to 90% of people who had COVID and got better. So these are still asymptomatic people. And I think it was like four or five months later, they checked their organ levels and they did it with electron microscope. It wasn't just like a CT scan or an MRI or blood testing because those were all normal. But when they looked at the electron microscope, they were able to see an increase in damage. And we do know that the heart muscle, whether it's pericarditis, which is outside the heart, or carditis, which is an infection or inflammation of the heart tissue itself, or heart muscle itself, can be caused by a number of these different infections, whether it's COVID or whether it's some of these Lyme-type infections that might be unearthed during this process. And I can go into a little bit more of that. That might kind of help show some of the crossover as well. Yeah, you can go into that. And then I also want to be optimistic. My first question is, in an optimistic part, the body is always trying to protect and regenerate itself to some extent. And the first thing I go to, because I, I like to oversimplify things in my head, and I think, well, can we help counteract if damage is pretty much imminent, which in theory, our lives and the way we live can be damaging to our body as well. Mm -hmm, right. So I think mm -hmm. this applies to regardless if you have COVID or not, can't we be supporting our mitochondria or basically what makes up the cells and helps with regeneration of energy? Like in theory, right? Is that a possibility? Yes. I mean, isn't that kind of like it goes back to, hey, how strong is your mitochondria? Which by the way, if you have chronic, chronic stress that's unresolved, I feel like that's one of the biggest red flags for me as for compromised mitochondria, that and age, which goes mm -hmm. back to risk factors for COVID in general, because mitochondria decreases with age. Yeah. Thoughts on that? I agree. And, you know, and I'm an eternal optimist and I totally believe that this is treatable and what I've seen, it's just, we're not looking at the right things and we can kind of dive into treatment a little bit more in a bit. But yes, you're absolutely right about mitochondria. You know, there was some of the research that I was just listening to yesterday that was looking at how the virus is affecting NAD plus and some of the other components of mitochondria and how it's using up certain enzymes that are requiring then different shunting to happen where there now you have to recruit L-tryptophan in order to make energy, which is a really poor use of resources. And consequently, then people are getting more depressed because they don't have tryptophan, then creating their serotonin. So I definitely believe that all the studies that we're looking at that I'm talking about that are frankly quite depressing about the prognosis of all this really are in the conventional model. These people aren't taking vitamin D. They're not taking zinc. They're not taking niacin or niacinamide. They're not taking some of the natural anti-inflammatories. They're actually not treating the virus. You know, it's wait and see, except for if you're uber rich or in the presidency where you can get some of these IVs that are like immunoglobulins. But you can do that from a more natural perspective by taking immunoglobulins, by taking antivirals that are herb-based that were actually shown to be helpful against SARS-1, 
you know, the likelihood that that's going to help in SARS-2. And that's what we're seeing. The folks who are going through my programs who had COVID are not having issues with COVID anymore because of what we're doing from a natural perspective to treat those things. So we do have to make sure that we take this research that I'm quoting with a grain of salt because that is in the conventional paradigm. So if people are interested in going more natural, they're going to be a lot more successful. Immunoglobulins are my supplement spirit animal. I do nice. love them quite a bit. If I was on a deserted <laughs> island, I would want immunoglobulins. So that leads into another listener question, which is, you know, the IFM has quite a list on supplements supportive of COVID. So I think we should talk about this with context of like, you can't just go take all these things, but you alluded to it right there in your last comments that these things are supportive and how are they supportive? And that's what I'd like to do. So maybe we want to talk about a few things and how they're supportive. And just a side note, because everyone wants to rant about COVID stuff because we're all subject to all the things for it for the whole year. I'm like, this is what gets me. I'm like, why can't we do drive-through vitamin D testing as well as drive-through COVID testing? Like, this would be a good use of resources if we could do drive-through vitamin D testing and grant. Okay. Let's talk about a few supportive things and the mechanisms of how they're supportive, if you don't mind. I think that would be so fun. Well, and I think in order to look at treatment or recommendations like that, we have to look at what's actually happening from the virus, right? So we want to make sure that we're targeting the consequences of the virus appropriately. So I would say the first thing is going to be uh, damage to the mitochondria. So the mitochondria is present in every single cell in the body except for red blood cells. It produces 70 to 80% of our energy, as you know. And it's going to get damaged by the virus. Now, part of that is damage to the mitochondrial DNA, and part of that is actually using up different components of it. So one of the things that we can do, and granted this is a Band-Aid, is we can start replacing some of that. So with the NAD plus deficiency theory, which is part of that whole mitochondrial picture, is giving NAD or NADH or nicotinic acid or niacin, but you have to be aware of the flush with the niacin. But all of those things are basically taking the raw resources, any sort of good mitochondrial product that people take, and the one that I recommend is called ATP360 by Research Nutritionals, has a combination of these things. These are raw materials that the mitochondria needs in order to improve its function, as well as increase the number of mitochondria, because that's generally what's happening is that you're getting a decrease in number, and then you're also getting a problem with the function. So that's some of those components, you know, D-ribose and CoQ10 and acetyl-L-carnitine and the NAD. Those are all, and then some phospholipids to get like through the mitochondrial membrane. So those are all components that can be really supportive in boosting the mitochondria. So that's one of the things that people can do right away. Mm-hmm. And it's a big thing. It's a big thing for sure. And then the next thing is the stress that's that's happening on the body from that. So what's being used up then in terms of our resources are our hormones, mainly the sentinel gland, which really is the adrenal gland. Adrenal gland is responsible for producing cortisol. Cortisol is the main stress hormone. This is why some people who are having lung issues or post-COVID issues are getting steroids. They're getting steroid packs, which are basically just glorified cortisol. Cortisol times a thousand is prednisone essentially. Mm -hmm. And so what this is doing is it's managing the inflammation. 
Okay. So in some ways, if it's just cortisol, then it's managing the inflammation. If it's prednisone, then it's suppressing the inflammation. It's suppressing the immune system. So we want to manage the immune system better because part of this is that the immune system is getting out of whack. The immune system is going after the COVID virus, but it's not able to get to it. Oftentimes, these viruses or these infections are hiding in different parts of the body. If it's hiding in the joints, the immune system is attacking the joints, trying to get at the infection, which is in the joint. And it just so happens that the casualties of war is damaged to the joint. And that's essentially rheumatoid arthritis, not necessarily from COVID. It can be, but just like from any sort of infection. I'm just giving some examples. You know, if the infection is hiding in the blood vessels, you know, perhaps it's Bartonella, or if it's hiding in the muscles, perhaps it's Bartonella, and the immune system is going after it, and the consequence is just that it's damaging these things. And so that's why people get symptoms in different parts of the body. COVID travels in the bloodstream. So unfortunately, wherever the bloodstream goes, the COVID can go. And so that's why we're seeing it really ubiquitous all over the body. So then in terms of managing the immune system, what we want to do is we want the immune system to get a little bit less confused. And so we want to use some natural immune modulators. So we're talking about high-dose vitamin C, high-dose vitamin D. We're talking about glutathione. There was a study that was done that showed that everybody who has COVID has glutathione deficiency. Glutathione also helps with mitochondrial function as well as detoxification and immune system function. Mm -hmm. Fish oils can also be a wonderful immune modulator. So those are some of the other things we use. Zinc can actually modulate the immune system, allow it to function better, as well as being a major player in mitochondrial function. So that's one of the reasons why a lot of people are talking about zinc. Mm -hmm. Some of the other thoughts around treatment are actually coming from the mast cell activation syndrome or MCAS world, which is basically a condition that people have when they're reactive to everything. They're reactive to most foods, they smell perfume and they're sick for a couple of days or a couple of hours, get headaches, whatever. And this is because the immune system is hyperactive. And this is kind of what we're seeing as well. And so in that case, vitamin C can help. Quercetin can be helpful as well. And then there's a couple of other herbs that I'll use in some combination products to keep that immune system in check. But in the end, it's coming down to getting rid of the virus. It's looking at some of these herbs, some of these nutrients. Propolis can be really helpful olive leaf extract. I'm forgetting all of them, but there's a list in some of the combination products that I like to use that can be really helpful for actually getting rid of the virus. Because consequently, if you get rid of the virus or you give the immune system some help to get rid of the virus, then you're going to be able to deal with all of this collateral damage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mast cell stuff is really frightening for the person living with it, right? Because it's pretty hard to be. Mm-hmm. I have an episode called The Girl Who Was Allergic to Everything, and it really goes over that a little bit. I love everything you talked about. I have a comment from a perspective of olive leaf kind of sort of acting as an antimicrobial. And sometimes I shy away from sort of like I got a call with someone and they're like taking oregano. And I think, you know, I don't love when people take like willy nilly antimicrobials because I think it, it's not good. Like if you don't know what you're doing, you just take it long-term, like all things supportive. I think you can take within reason and there's generally not harm for not, I mean, there's some things that you could technically overdose, but if it's something is kind of abrasive or antimicrobial ish, then I would use maybe more caution. Would you agree? 
It's a good question. I struggle with this as well because there's two thoughts. One thought is around the charge that is present on bugs that are not good for the body. So I'm going to get it wrong here, but normal flora is generally charged positively, has a positive charge, and that in bugs that are infecting a particular area have a negative charge. Mm. And the herbs have a positive charge, and so they're just going to kill off of the negatively charged particles, and they're not going to touch the positively charged. So that's the thinking about why it doesn't cause dysbiosis. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure that it's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. Now, that said, I agree with your comment that you have to be specific. But I do believe that when you figure out what your cause is, which infection you have, and you're treating it appropriately, I think that there might be some collateral damage. Sometimes there's die-off, which causes stress on the human organism and also causes damage to the mitochondria. So you have to make sure your detoxification pathways are, are open. But I do think that the end justifies the means where if you are getting rid of a particular infection and you try to mitigate die off as much as possible or what's called a Herxheimer reaction, that you're going to be better off on the other end. And this is what I see time and time again. So I think that I don't want people to be afraid of herbal therapies, but I do agree with you with some of those caveats. Yeah. Sometimes, even though something's supposed to be a certain way, sometimes you see, it's kind of like my other example that I would, I feel like translates this way is that in theory, prebiotics are not supposed to feed bad bacteria. But when we give prebiotics and you have bad bugs, the results are usually not optimal, <laughs> not very good. So I find that in practice, and I think I've had this conversation with other people, you know, other practitioners, and we kind of, most of us feel this way. It's like prebiotics by definition are supposed to feed good bacteria, but it seems like it, it's not necessarily straightforward. So Right. And there is that product that Microbiome Labs has that their research showed that they just fed the good bacteria, but I still arm wrestle with myself all the time about them. Yeah, I actually, <laughs> Kron's first episode on my podcast was probably the most popular, most listed to one. And then the last time I felt like he and I, we were kind of tussling over it because it is a little different. They make amazing products, but you know, it just depends on how it works in clients. You know, that's what right. really matters. It's like, does this work mm -hmm. for this person or not? So right. it's not always straightforward. Okay. So that would have been a beautiful place to end because I feel like we covered a lot of fabulous things reviewing the long haul post COVID varies in symptoms that can be, you know, very short term, it can be long term, apparently organ damage is a thing. And it hanging out asymptomatically in your intestines, whatever that means is a thing. Um, <laughs> so can we mention maybe what percentage of people who have had COVID progress to post COVID fatigue? And then I also wonder, and you may not be able to answer this question. Is there even like, what is the utility of getting a COVID vaccine if you've already had COVID? Does it help? Because in theory, if the vaccine is like helping your immune system recognize it, doesn't your immune system already recognize it? Just thinking out loud. That's all. Just curious. Yeah, that's a good question. I think I'll start with that one. Mm -hmm. So I would agree with you. I do not think that if you've had COVID, I do not think that you need a vaccine because mm -hmm. I'm not sure that's the whole point of having the vaccine is to do what you said, which is to recognize, is to make the immune system aware of the infection so that it can operate. It's not necessarily going to make the immune system function better to get rid of a virus that might still be in the body. 
So I think that it's very interesting. And especially what's going to be really interesting too, is that if my supposition is correct, where most of us have been exposed, but not everybody has symptoms, what's going to happen when people get the vaccine? How does that affect them? Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. The second, the first part of that question was about the percent. There have been a few observational studies right now, a couple hundred people, where we're seeing anywhere between 30 and the last I saw was 52% of people who got COVID and then got post-COVID syndrome. So the numbers are incredibly high. And so there are post-COVID syndrome clinics or long COVID or long hauler clinics that are starting to pop up, which I think is going to be really great. But right now, most of it is focused on symptom management. Mm-hmm. And I'm really hoping that we can develop, that it's going to be a big enough issue. I mean, the, the beauty of all this is really about how much, hopefully, this will bring to the MECFS community. So people who've got myalgic encephalitis and chronic fatigue syndrome, because those people have been dismissed for years. And there's so much focus right now on this infection that's causing very similar symptoms. So I'm really hoping that a lot of this ends up crossing over and we get some really good tools and we get some really good protocols in order to get rid of the infection and get a better understanding that we can then also apply to the chronic fatigue community and get more awareness around that. Yeah, I would agree. Good to be optimistic. I think it's a one last thought. I have someone who asked about blood type stuff, but this made me think about the things that have just kind of recently-ish come out in the news about finding COVID antibodies in blood donations from last fall of 2019. So also in theory, if people are getting blood from donors that have had antibodies, in a way, that's also being introduced to the immune system, right? Right. Yeah. Is there anything, and I mean, I would have never thought about this like this, but this is another listener question about does blood type play a role in severity? And maybe she saw something about this. It's the first time I have heard a question like that. So do you have any comments on blood type being a role in severity of COVID? I do. Cool. So the research shows that blood type plays a role in acute infection, but we're not seeing it in chronic infection. We're not seeing it in the post-COVID syndrome folks. We are seeing it in terms of the severity of the acute infection as well as the likelihood of acute infection. It seems like AB might be the, the most likely to get acute COVID and less of the O's, but not so much, but there is no correlation with the long COVID folks. Interesting. Yeah, probably not long enough to understand the long COVID. (laughs) Anyway, I'm not even a pun person. All right, great. (laughs) I enjoyed this. Is there any last thoughts that you want to leave people with on post-COVID syndrome? I think we covered a lot of fabulous information for people that they can really tangibly take and use. And I think the type of information that we do need to put out there as well is that we have tools in our toolboxes that do support the immune system. But what do you want to leave people with? Yeah, I think it's an optimistic picture. I think that we've had challenges, but we keep on learning more and more. And I think that we have a lot of tools when it comes to natural, functional, and environmental medicine, and that there are possibilities. So, you know, keep moving forward, keep being in action, keep asking for help, and you're going to be successful. I love it. Lots of good optimism from you. Where can people find you online? I'm at fixyourfatigue.com, F-I-X-Y-O-U-R-F-A-T-I-G-U-E.com. And we have incorporated treatment for COVID-19 and post-COVID syndrome into our protocols. Cool. 
When did you switch to that URL? Because I don't know what years it was when your wife was dealing with fatigue and you had your five years. So when did you make that crossover? (laughs) That's a good question. Let's see. I was Hirsch Holistic Family Medicine when I first came out in 2007, and then it became Hirsch Center for Integrative Medicine when integrated, got more into integrative medicine, and and then it ended up in fixyourfatigue.org, which was back in 2018 when I created my virtual practice. And then I recently got .com. I actually, I trademarked Fix Your Fatigue. Funny story, I trademarked it. And I contacted them and I said, how much is fixyourfatigue.com? And they said, it's $5,000. And I said, well, I trademarked it and I will fight anybody else to use this name. And so nobody else is going to buy it. Why don't you give it to me for a hundred bucks? And they're like, okay. (laughs) I love this story. (laughs) And I also think it's cool because I was smiling because I realized like you don't just come out of the gate with where you are now, right? And I'm kind of like evaluating the last few years of practice and where I'd like to move into and whatever. And so just from this standpoint, I'm kind of evaluating what 2021 looks like. And it's kind of a year of evolving and kind of growing and, you know, just like really leaning into the purpose, which is what Fix Your Fatigue has been for you. So I knew you didn't start there. So I was just curious when that all, when that transition took place. Fun. It's always fun to know the backstories. Anyway, I look forward to having you come back to talk about chronic fatigue and fatigue as a whole. And thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me on, Krista. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stressed Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stressed Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 